So as you know, of course, today is Easter Sunday. Easter is a major cultural holiday in our culture. And I hope you have a fun day. We've got bunnies, at least most of us. We've got eggs. We've got pastels. We've got all sorts of fun things. Easter is a lot of fun, at least it should be. But today, in these next few minutes together, my goal, just to cut to the chase here, is to help you to understand what Easter, what Resurrection Sunday really is about. So what is Easter really about? What is it that we're celebrating here this morning? Well, Easter is all about ultimate things. Easter is all about life and death. It's all about answering the big questions that we all have. What's going to happen when I die? What is God like? What is wrong with this world? This chapter from John's gospel helps us to understand the meaning and the power of the Easter event of Jesus of Nazareth's resurrection from the dead. Jesus says here, I am the resurrection and the life. And knowing him personally means that you too will have resurrection and life. That's what I want you to know and to believe this morning. Now, here at Christ Church, this year we've been studying this gospel, the gospel of John. We're going straight through it. We'd love to have you back here next week as we continue in our study of John. And uh, John has a very explicit intent in writing this letter. He was one of Jesus' disciples and an eyewitness to these events. And he tells us very clearly why he wrote John's gospel. In chapter 20, at the very end, he says, I wrote this that you may believe, that you may believe, and that by believing, you may have life in the name of Jesus. And so each and every week, we've been seeing how Jesus is the way to real life. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the king. And Jesus is the savior. And today, in the story of Jesus raising his friend, Lazarus from the dead, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, we see that again in a new way and in a fresh way. And here's how I want to summarize John 11. Here's the main idea for you to take home with you in faith today. Jesus' resurrection overcomes the sadness of death for everyone who will trust him. That's the point. Jesus' resurrection overcomes the sadness of death for everyone who will trust him. And as we move through this story, I want to outline it in three points. The sadness of death, the resurrection and the life, and the leap of faith. Okay, so if you're a note taker, there you go. The sadness of death, resurrection and life, the leap of faith. So first we see in this story the sadness of death. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we see the context being set for us. Like any good storyteller, John sets the scene. And the scene is this. Jesus has a very close friend, Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother of these two women, Mary and Martha. And Lazarus is very, very sick. Jesus, we read in verse 5, loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He's close with this family. They're very tight. And it turns out that Lazarus is so sick that he ends up dying. No doctor can help him. No medicine can heal him. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 14 that Lazarus has died. And when Jesus arrives on the scene in Bethany, the village that he lived in, Lazarus has already been dead and buried, we read, verse 17, for four days. So this story has a somber cast to it. There's sadness here. It's sad because Lazarus undoubtedly was a young man. He seems to have died well before his time. And there's great sadness. There's mourning. There's tears. John points us to the sadness of Mary and Martha repeatedly in the story. 
The whole community, we read in verse 19, is sad at these events. We see there that many of the Jews in the town had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. I mean, think about that with me. These three siblings, two sisters and a brother, have grown up together. They've played together. They've camped out together. They've eaten countless meals together. They've worked together. They've fought together. They've cried and whispered secrets together. And Lazarus has been ripped out of the sisters' lives by death. It's a real tragedy. There's the sadness of death here. But there's more to the sadness of Mary and Martha. They're sad because they've lost their brother in an untimely way to an early death. But they're also sad, John makes it very clear, that Jesus was not there. Jesus was not there when Lazarus died. In fact, you might even say that Martha and Mary are both sad and mad. Did you notice in the story that John tells us that Mary and Martha say to Jesus the exact same thing? It's the exact same phrasing in the original language in Greek. In verse 21, Martha says it. And in verse 32, Mary says it. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This scene reminds me of one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride. It's a great thing to do this Easter afternoon, by the way, is to watch that movie. It's a great movie. And uh, this is a movie about a young lady whose name is Buttercup. And Buttercup falls in love with a man named Wesley. But Wesley has to go away. And while Wesley is away, Buttercup is sort of coercively, forcibly engaged to the prince of the realm. His name is Humperdinck. And he's even worse than his name. I mean, he's a bad guy. Mean guy, cruel man. And Buttercup doesn't want to marry Prince Humperdinck at all. And as the story progresses, I'm not going to give it all away, but you should have seen this movie. I mean, come on. And uh, as the story progresses, Buttercup strikes up a deal with Humperdinck that says, if Wesley, my true love, returns, I don't have to marry you. I'm going to marry him. And Humperdinck says, okay, fine. We don't, Buttercup doesn't know that Humperdinck is actually trying to kill Wesley the whole time this is going on. But Hupperdink says to her, if Wesley doesn't show up, then perhaps you can settle for me as a secondary husband. And so the whole time, Princess Buttercup expects Wesley to return and rescue her. And we get to the day of the wedding itself. And Buttercup is beautifully dressed as a bride. And we even get to the moment where she walks down the aisle and meets the groom, Prince Humperdinck. And the priest begins to recite to them the wedding homily. And they take their vows. And Buttercup the whole time is saying, Wesley's going to come. Wesley's going to save me. I'm not going to have to go through with this. Until the very end of the wedding happens, the priest says, man and wife. And the ceremony ends. And Buttercup is looking forlorn and dismayed and sad. And she says, he didn't come. It's exactly what Mary and Martha feel. Jesus doesn't show up. And so when he does enter town, four days after Lazarus died, Mary stays at home privately. She's the introvert. Martha goes to meet Jesus. She's the extrovert. And she meets him on the road and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And it's even more apparent that John seems to tell us that Jesus intentionally didn't show up in time. In verse 6, we read, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, what does he do? He doesn't catch the first Amtrak to Bethany. He stays two days longer in the place that he was. 
It seems like Jesus is intentionally delaying going to help, even though he knows that his good friend Lazarus is sick. What is that about? This seems callous. If Jesus can help, why doesn't he help? I want you to get a sense of the feelings of Mary and Martha here. And I want to ask you, have you ever felt that way? Mary and Martha are thinking, God, at the moment I needed you, you were not there. You were a day late and a dollar short. That's unquestionably a part of their sadness. Do you feel that way towards God? It's okay to admit that. Have you ever said to God, if you had been there, God, or if you had done this for me, this terrible thing wouldn't have happened. God, if you had been there, I wouldn't have lost my child. God, if you had showed up in time, I wouldn't have lost my business or my job. God, if you were listening, I wouldn't have lost my marriage. Where was God when I needed him? Where was God when I was hurting? That might be a question you're asking right now. It's definitely what Mary and Martha were asking. Does God care really about my sadness? Does he really care about my hurts? Well, this story tells us that God actually does care. We see it in the story. For one, Jesus seems to know exactly what's going on, this entire story. He says in verse 4, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified. It's like Jesus is orchestrating all of these events so that he might receive glory through it. James Baldwin is an author. He's an African-American scholar and pastor. And reflecting on the African-American struggle in the United States, he writes this. I love this quote. He says, The Lord never seems to get there when you want him. But when he arrives, he's always right on time. So Jesus seems to know what's going on, but there's more evidence here that Jesus cares about Martha and Mary's sadness and that he cares about your sadness. The major proof of that in this story is that Jesus, Jesus, God incarnate, is deeply saddened at the death of Lazarus as well. Look in verse 33. We read there, When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now that phrase there, deeply moved in his spirit, is loaded. It doesn't just mean that Jesus is sad. What that phrase means is that Jesus is outraged. Jesus is fighting mad. He is angry. He is forlorn over the reality of death in the world. And then John tells us, in the shortest verse in the whole Bible, by the way, two words, Jesus wept. Jesus bawled. Jesus ugly cried. (laughs) He's overcome with sadness and outrage and anger. Potanius of Lisbon, an ancient Christian, wrote this of this story. God wept. Moved by the tears of mortals. Think about that. This is really a remarkable thing. I believe this is, of all the world religions, something that's unique to Christianity. Here is what the real God is like. Okay? He is not calloused and careless when it comes to our suffering. When it comes to our sadness, and even when it comes to our death. No, God himself 
seen here in Jesus, is deeply moved and deeply saddened at every hurt, at every wound, at every pain that every one of you have ever experienced. And the reason that that's true is because this is God's world. He made this world good and beautiful and radiant. And evil has ruptured that goodness. Sin and pain have entered the world, tarnishing his beautiful universe. And death is the result of sin. And death is an affront. It's an offense to the real God. Hear this, because this is a part of the story of Easter, and it's a part of the truth about God. God weeps along with your weeping. God is concerned for the circumstances and situations that cause you pain. God really does grieve, really grieve over the reality of sadness and the reality of death. And God's sadness and outrage and anger at death drive him to do something about it. And we see what he does, secondly. We see the sadness of death first, and secondly, the resurrection and the life. God made visible, Jesus, does two things here in this story that demonstrate that he is going to do something about the sadness of death. First, he speaks about defeating death, and then secondly, he demonstrates that he's going to defeat death. Look in verse 23. He speaks here about defeating death. Now, I mentioned a second ago that Jesus seems to be completely in in control this entire time. And here in his encounter with Martha, Martha runs out of the community to meet him on the road, entering into Bethany. And she says, if you had been here, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And look at what Jesus says right away. Your brother will rise again. Boom. Without even hesitating. And then Martha, like a good... Jewish woman in the first century says something that's theologically true. She says, verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's a really good, solid theological answer. She gives a true, albeit abstracted, theological maxim. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's true as far as it goes, but Martha, you don't really get it. I am. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Now, what does that mean? Well, he clarifies it. He says, whoever believes in me, even though that person will die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Shall never die? Seriously? Now that is getting us to the very heart of Easter. It's getting us to the very heart of Christianity. Jesus here can tell Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live because... Jesus knows that he is going to conquer death himself. That's the key. Jesus is able to give resurrection and life to those of us who have to suffer the sadness of death because Jesus rose to life himself. Jesus defeated death in his death And in his resurrection, Jesus drove death away for good. Jesus took away death's dominion. Death does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. That's what the New Testament is getting at, and we read about it elsewhere. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes this. Listen. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. 
but each in its own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his own coming, those who belong to Christ. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus is the first fruits, the first one to conquer death through his power and through his resurrection. And all who are connected to Jesus overcome death along with him. He's the first fruits, but we're a part of the harvest of resurrection if we believe as well. So Easter means that Jesus defeats death in his resurrection and his people defeat death with him. Jesus speaks about defeating death. But then what does he do? Jesus isn't just all talk. Ever. Jesus now demonstrates. He demonstrates that he has the power over death. Tracy read, look again at the end of the story, verses 39 through 44. Jesus has wept. He's ugly cried. Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's long dead. Dead as a doornail. He's not mostly dead. He's all dead. And now Jesus says, take away the stone, verse 39. And Martha, she still doesn't get it. She's a busybody. And she says here, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Or as the King James says, by this time he stinketh. It really does say that. By this time he stinketh. <laughs> you just never know. The stinkethness of Lazarus doesn't cause Jesus to hesitate. Jesus says, move the stone away. And so Jesus prays to God the Father, and then he very simply says, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? This is crazy. The grip of death is loosened. The shadow of death vanishes. Lazarus, a guy who's been dead for four days, gets up and comes out. And he's not a mummy. He has his life back. And Jesus just says, hey, unbind him and let him go. And then kind of walks away like I'm on to the next thing. As if it's the easiest and simplest thing in the world for Jesus by a word to cause someone who's been dead for four days to come back to life. When I try to get my kids up in the morning. You know where I'm going. Just skip this illustration. No, seriously. Sometimes it's hard, but for my family, they're usually up before me, actually. But often when I try and get my kids up to go to school, I'll... uh, I don't have to yell much very often. They're pretty easy to get up. But I'll come up to them and, you know, just touch their head and move the hair back from their face. And I might kiss them on the forehead and I'll whisper, Ben, Ainsley, Nate, time to get up. Let's get ready for the day. And start moving around and eventually they'll get up. Listen, you see what this story's saying? It's as easy for Jesus to raise someone from the dead as it is for you to wake your child up from a nap. Lazarus, get up. And up Lazarus comes. Do you understand what that means? You understand what that means for you right now? Here's what it means. It means that because Jesus has been raised from the dead and conquered death, Jesus will also raise us from the dead and conquer death for us. The Bible says this all the time. A couple of examples. 1 Thessalonians says that the Lord himself will descend with a cry of command and the dead in Christ will rise. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Here's what this story is telling you. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, nothing can defeat or conquer you if you're connected to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus takes away the stone. Jesus takes away the stone of death. Jesus takes away the stone of sadness. Jesus takes away the stone of all of your loss. Jesus takes away the stone of injustice. Jesus takes away the stone of evil. Jesus rolls away the stone. Jesus wins. Jesus has conquered death. We will live again after death. This world will be made whole again. And we will walk into the new world in resurrection along with Jesus himself. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In the Lord of the Rings, um, there's a great scene in the film. It's a different scene in the, in the books, but I won't get into the details of that. We're not exegeting the Lord of the Rings, exegeting the Bible. But in the movie, there's a scene where one of the hobbits, Pippin, is at the very top of the great majestic city of Gondor with the old, wise, powerful wizard Gandalf. And the hordes of Mordor, the enemy, is bombarding and assaulting the city. And they've got huge trolls and they've got thousands of warriors and they're going to win. And you see the walls of the city come crashing down and the orcs and the evil men and the trolls begin to enter the city and destroy the forces of good. And Pippin is overcast with sadness and grief. And he looks at Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I didn't think it was going to end this way. And Gandalf very calmly looks at Pippin and says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass and then you see it. And Pippin says, what, Gandalf, see what? And Gandalf replies, white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. To which Gandalf replies, no, no, it isn't. Jesus is going to enter into a new world and bring us with him white shores, green fields, under a swift sunrise, death is not going to win. He's the resurrection and the life. So Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus defeats death. Jesus conquers the grave. That's the story of Christianity. That's the true story of this world. So we have one last question to answer. How should we respond? Given that all that's true, maybe you can even suspend your own disbelief for a minute and assume that that's true. What does that mean for you now, 2,000 years later? What difference does it make in your life that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? How can we get the resurrection and the life that Jesus alone can give us? Well, it's very, very clear in this text. In fact, Jesus speaks of the response he expects of you and that he expects of me again and again and again. What is it? What's the response? Here's what it is. It's to trust him. It's to believe. I mean, look, verse 15. Jesus will do this miracle for your sake that you may what? Believe. Verse 40. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Verse 42. In his prayer, he says, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may what? Believe that you sent me. And finally, and I think most poignantly, look at Jesus' words to Martha. He tells her he's the resurrection of the life. He tells her he conquers death, that all who believe in him will never die. And then he asks her a question, verse 26. Martha, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because that's really the question. That's the response Jesus is asking of you now. To leap into faith. 
But it's not a faith that's blind. It's not like you're closing your eyes and cliff diving into who knows what. It's not risky. It's not risky to entrust yourself to Jesus. In fact, it's far and away the most reasonable path for you to take. So I have to ask each one of you individually and really ask myself this Easter morning, do you believe this? The Spirit of God right now is calling you to believe this. He's asking you and summoning you right now, the one who made you, the one who right now is sustaining your life. You're drawing in breath. You're able to live and move and have your being right this second and every second because Jesus is alive, because God made you. And right now, he's asking you to believe this. Do you believe that Jesus has conquered death through his resurrection? Real quickly, let me conclude by telling you what that might look like for you if you don't believe, and then I'm going to tell you one more story, and then we're done. What does it look like for you to believe this? First, you need to acknowledge the sadness of death. Acknowledge that. It, this should be easy. It takes just a little bit of humility for you to acknowledge that your life is a mess, that there's things in your life that you don't like, that bad things happen to you, and you also do bad things. And none of those lead to a place that's healthy. None of those lead to your flourishing. So admit that. Acknowledge that. All of us live in the sadness of death because all of us are guilty of sin and rebellion against God. We are separated from God and living in darkness. The first step to belief is to acknowledge and confess that that's true. Will you do that? The second step, after you've done that, is to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus died on the cross to give you forgiveness of all of your sins, of all of your rebellion, to dispel the darkness in your life. He pardons you completely, not because you've done anything to deserve it or earn it. You haven't, but because he's a gracious God and he loves you. He died on the cross to forgive you, and then he rose from the grave to give you life and to defeat death. He's asking you to believe that, not just to give it intellectual assent, but to entrust yourself to him fully, to commit all of your life to him. First, acknowledge the sadness of death. Acknowledge your sin. Second, trust his death and resurrection by faith. And then third, commit to Jesus as your king. Following and serving and obeying Jesus is really the only possible response to the person that has power over death, to the king, to the conqueror. Not only is it the only rational response, but it's also the best response. The best possible life that you can get, live is a life in submission to King Jesus. Because that's how you were made. You weren't made to be a demigod. You weren't made to rule this universe on your own. You weren't made, and I wasn't made, that everything would revolve around us. You were made to revolve around Jesus. And when you orient your life around him... You find your true calling, you find your true fulfillment, you'll find true hope. What does it mean to believe it? Confess and acknowledge that you're broken and in need. Trust his death and resurrection by faith and commit to obeying him. Because Jesus' resurrection overcomes the sadness of death for all who will trust him. You know, as a pastor, one of the things that I have opportunity to do from time to time is walk people through the sadness of death. And at a former church that Marianne and I served in in Tucson, there was a dear sweet lady in that church that had a really bad advanced form of cancer and that was slowly declining and going to die. And uh, she was very dear to our family and very dear to our church. And uh, I would visit her very frequently in the hospital. I would sit by her and talk to her, read the scripture to her. 
and uh, pray with her, along with others in our faith community. And as she slowly declined, the physicians would do one thing after another to try to cure her. And because the cancer had ravaged her so much, she got to a point where she couldn't even speak. And everybody really was kind of preparing for her death, except for one person, her husband. It was a sad thing to see. You see it sometimes. He was really going through the seven stages of grief, and he was in denial. He didn't want to admit that his beloved wife was soon to leave him. And so he was doing everything he could and asking the physicians to do everything that they could to prolong her life. And it got to the point where it was a little bit painful and really awkward and a conversation was needed. And I remember being there one day, sitting next to this lady, unable to speak, near death, about to be transferred into hospice, and uh, her husband was speaking to one of the physicians, talking about what the next steps would be, and she began to write something on her notepad, because I'd given her a notepad because she couldn't talk to me. So she would just write what she wanted to say. And she was writing furiously, and she tore the notepad off, and handed me the piece of paper. And you know what it said? It said, tell him to let me go. And then there were three more words underlined. Christ is risen. I'll never forget that. She was able to walk through the sadness of death with hope because Jesus Christ has walked through the sadness of death before her. Christ is risen. Let's pray.